0: Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 28. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 28. That will serve as our main text for this morning's message. Romans 3, verses 9 to 28. Back in 1831, there was a French statesman and a writer by the name of Alex Charles de Tocqueville. Tocqueville, T O C Q U E V I L L E. He was commissioned by the government of France to go to America and to investigate and to report on the penitentiary system of the United States as a result of his visit to the United States he wrote a book about the nature and virtues and defects of American democracy and his book was entitled Democracy in America shortly after his return home to France Tocqueville wrote the following passage Quote, I sought for the greatness of America in her harbors and rivers and fertile fields and in her mines and commerce. It was not there. Not until I went into the churches and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the greatness of her power. America is great because she is good and if america ever ceases to be good america will cease to be great end of quote the bible says in proverbs 14:34 righteousness exalteth a nation but sin is a reproach to any people we are witnessing today firsthand the disintegration of the most powerful nation that ever existed on the face of this earth, the United States of America. No other nation before her ever enjoyed such formidable wealth and prosperity as she has. No other nation has ever given such amazing technological achievements to the people of the world as the United States did. No other nation before her has ever contributed so much to the cause of peace, liberty, and freedom worldwide. The United States of America became every nation's hope of greatness. Her achievements in medicine, science, technology, agriculture, and communications were the envy of the world. Her vast quantities of natural resources enabled her to enjoy a living standard that put her above her peers for nearly two centuries, and the power of her military thwarted all attempts to subdue her privileged position. But as America prospered, and I include Canada here as part and parcel, as America prospered, it began to forget the source of its greatness, and that source was God. It began to forget that God was the one who gives mankind the power to gain wealth. America also forgot the warning which God had given to his chosen people Israel a long time ago when they made the same mistakes. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 17 to 20, we read these solemn words. And thou shalt say in thine heart, my power, and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do it all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. The greatness of the United States of America is gone because the goodness of its nation has become corrupt. God has been subtly but effectively removed from its schools, its homes, and its churches. It is no wonder, then, that America's greatest and highest office, that of the presidency, is should be so deeply corrupted with sin that there is now no hope of restoration. How deeply corruption has penetrated into the once God-fearing fabric of American society is clearly evident. In the present scandals created by the Joe Biden family, the current president of the United States of America, and by Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada and his scandals and flagrant disregard for the laws of the land and abuse of power. But they alone are not to blame. The entire system seems to have become corrupt, and consequently, all of us are to blame. We are all guilty, every one of us, The United States are no more guilty than our Canada and its political system and its leaders. But how did all of this happen? Surely, it didn't happen overnight. If we are honest, we will confess that every father in this country, Christian or non-Christian, who failed to raise his children to become responsible citizens, respecting others, and obeying the laws of the land is to blame. Every mother, Christian or non-Christian, who failed to impart to her children the essence of love and kindness and compassion towards others is to blame. Every teacher who failed to acknowledge the handiwork of our Creator in the classroom is to be blamed. Every politician who helped to pass anti-God legislation, making the commandments of the Lord of none effect, is to be blamed. And every pastor, elder, deacon, or minister of the gospel who failed to faithfully proclaim Christ as mankind's only hope of salvation from our sins is also to blame. For each one of us has had a part to play, no matter how small. Each one of us is guilty to one degree or to another. Each one of us is responsible for the demise of our nations. For the Bible tells us why this is so in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In that same chapter, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Sometimes even we as Christians forget that. There is none righteous because we have all sinned. And therein lies the problem, sin. It is impossible for anyone to be righteous if one is a sinner to begin with. Sin makes it impossible to be righteous. The very essence of righteousness demands purity of heart and rectitude of life, the being and doing of right, the being and doing that which is just all the time, every time. Sin causes man to do the opposite. The sin nature which we all have been born with entices us to disobedience every step of the way. That sin nature may sometimes be restrained momentarily by legal laws or even moral laws because of the threat of punishment. But once that threat is removed or even distanced, that old sin nature rears its ugly head and causes sin to abound. It is a hopeless cycle. It is impossible to overcome. Again, we read in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 11 to 12, There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way, they are altogether become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. What a frightening declaration by the word of God. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Oftentimes we hear people say when asked about their standing before God, Oh, I'll take my chances. I'm sure that God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and that my good deeds will outweigh the bad. After all, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I've lived an honest life. I go to church. I pay my taxes, etc., and the list of delusions is endless. And yet what every sinner fails to understand before he comes face to face with the righteousness of God is this, that sin is disobedience to God's will. That one sin is all it takes to make someone a sinner by practice, we are already all born sinners by nature, which means we are all prone to sin. But it is not until we sin personally that we become sinners by practice, and therefore are without hope to save ourselves. But it is only when we come face to face with the holy standard of God's commandments and his unchanging character of holiness that we realize that our situation is lost. It is at that frightening moment when we are made aware of God's sovereign power to judge and to execute that we begin to tremble and to fear. It is at that precise moment that the sinner realizes that the wages of sin is death It is at that moment, by the grace of God, that the sinner admits that he or she has failed to meet God's holy standard, that he has failed to please God, that he has failed to resolve the problem of separation because of sin. In short, the sinner is without hope. He is without hope because he now knows that he cannot change himself. He cannot stop being a sinner. And if he could, he can do nothing about the sins which he has already committed. While on the other hand, he realizes too that God, who is holy, altogether righteous and just, cannot change himself either. And so the sin question still remains. What to do about it? For now, the sinner is made aware of the wrath of Almighty God. The Apostle Paul reveals to all sinners the situation and solution for their sins in Romans 1 verses 16 to 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul could without reservation write that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because he had personally experienced its redeeming power from sin. He had personally seen it at work in the lives of all who believed, whether they were Jew or Gentile. It was the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. It was able to fully meet the need of the mind, the conscience, and the heart of man, for in it was revealed the righteousness of God through the vehicle of faith. It was a proclamation of salvation entirely on the faith principle. It was not a doctrine of salvation by works, as so many are deceived into thinking. This gospel of Christ was the key that opened the door of liberty. Justification by faith alone was its basic principle. But no mind that is untaught by the Spirit of God, will ever receive it. Because this gospel of Christ clearly demonstrates the utter unprofitability of the flesh, or the first man, so that the second man, the man of God's choice, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, may alone be exalted. And through faith, all honor is given to Christ alone, who has finished the work that saves, and in whom alone God has been fully glorified, his holiness maintained, his righteousness vindicated. But the Apostle Paul does not stop there. If we read on in the rest of the first chapter, the book of Romans, verses 18 to 32, and then in chapter 2 and 3, we discover the desperate need for the gospel of Christ. For we see that the whole world has been condemned under sin. The whole world is guilty. The whole world is is unrighteous and comes short of the glory of God. Now, time prevents us from covering thoroughly the apostles' argument concerning mankind's guilt before God in these opening few chapters of Romans. So I would like to briefly just concentrate on Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 28, which is our main text. And concentrate on Paul's final verdict, which is really God's divine verdict on the entire human race as revealed to us through the Apostle Paul. Guilty is the verdict. Both Jew and Gentile, guilty on 14 distinct counts. And the first count is Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has failed in something. Everyone has disobeyed God's holy standard in some fashion or another. Everyone has either murdered or committed adultery or stolen something or lied to someone or had an evil thought towards a friend, neighbor, family member. And in that sense, everyone is guilty. Everyone is unrighteous. There are no exceptions. All have sinned. The second count is Romans 3, verse 11. There is none that understandeth. All have become willfully ignorant. How many times have we in our own lives experienced this? We knew something to be true, but because it did not please our fancy, we rejected it because we had no understanding. The third count of guilt is also in verse 11. There is none that seeketh after God. No one seeks after God's will. They all seek their own will. Even in the lives of Christians, there is this constant battle, the battle of self-will versus the will of God. What sinner, therefore, could have any hope of ever standing before God's judgment without condemnation then there is the fourth count in verse 12 they are all gone out of the way they have all turned their backs on the truth they have all refused to listen they have all chosen their own paths paths that lead to destruction and as a result they are together become unprofitable because they dishonor God in their deeds, instead of glorifying him. And so the apostle is just in saying, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Though many may agree about the good that some do, which brings benefits to man or to society, But the fact of the matter is that this is not their normal practice. Their practices are evil. They do not follow after that which is good because the sin nature is prone to do evil rather than good. Then there is a seventh count and an eighth, ninth, and tenth in verses 13 to 14. Their throat is an open sepulchre. That is, they are ready to swallow up the poor and innocent, waiting for an in- opportunity to do mischief, like the old serpent seeking to devour. And though they may not openly display this cruelty, yet secretly they intend mischief. With their tongues they have used deceit. Lying and deception are the characteristics Of the unredeemed the unregenerate herein they show their true nature and their connection to the father of all lies the devil they make a trade of lying and a constant practice no amount of education culture training or even importance of office can curb this practice this practice of lying is evident everywhere. We see it in the highest of our offices. We see it in even our Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is the most venomous and incurable poison with which they destroy their neighbor's good name by reproaches and attempts at his life by false witness. It is the poison inserted into the very nature of man by that old serpent right from the very beginning. And their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, most people today take cursing very lightly. But cursing was such a heinous sin that the Mosaic law forbade the cursing of father or mother upon the pain of death. In Exodus 21, verse 17, we read, And he that curseth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. For it diametrically opposed God's fifth commandment, which was honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee exodus 20:12 America today has an epidemic of disintegrating families because of its rejection of God and his commandments concerning families and the sanctity of marriage what hope is there for a family to survive if God has been cast out Then in verse 15 of Romans 3, we are given the 11th count of guilt against mankind. Their feet are swift to shed blood. See how sin unchecked degenerates into unspeakable human cruelties. Hatred, bitterness, envy eventually produces murder, which in turn destroys the peace and well-being of, of others. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Wherever these murdering spirits go, destruction and misery go with them. They become their companions. Destruction and misery to the people of God, to the country, and neighbors where they live, to the land and nation, and finally to themselves. And death, is the end result of these things. We only need to see what President Putin has done to the nation of the Ukraine, the death and destruction that he has unleashed upon that peaceful nation. Then in verse 17, we see the 13th condemnation. And the way of peace have they not known, because as we have seen, they have deliberately chosen the ways of death. Their sin has its own punishment. A man needs no more to make him miserable than to be a slave to his own sins. They know not how to preserve peace with others, nor how to obtain peace for themselves. Oh, they may talk about peace, may even seek peace, but they are strangers to all true peace because they have rejected the Prince of Peace, the only one who can bring peace to their own lives. And the final condemnation, the 14th count, bringing a guilty verdict, is in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Hence, there is no wisdom in them. This is the root of the matter. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible constantly reminds us about the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then in Proverbs 3, verses 7 to 8, Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel, and marrow to thy bones. Wicked people do not have the fear of God before their eyes. They do not steer by it. They are governed by other rules and aim at other ends. And where there is no fear of God, there can be no good expected. Once fear is cast off, prayer is restrained, and then all goes to wreck and ruin quickly. But the Bible tells us that the fear of God is what keeps our hearts opposed to evil on the one hand and our eyes upon the holiness of God, on the other hand. The fear of God always brings before us a need to evaluate our own actions and to carefully weigh the possible consequences for those actions. Whether sinner or saint, God's holiness must be acknowledged and his sovereignty confessed. For he is Lord of all, and he dictates the time of, of our departure or the time of our lingering. Every breath that we take, every morsel of food that we eat, every drop of water that we drink is an extension of God's sovereign grace and loving kindness to us. And when our time is ended, when our days of youth and vigor come to an end on this earth, we must then come to a reckoning before the Almighty. For the saint, the Christian, the one who has been saved by grace, it is the judgment seat of Christ where the saint's service for the Lord will be judged. And Though we enjoy his manifold blessings, his mercy, grace, and unconditional love as children of God, we nevertheless must remember who our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Hebrews 12, verses 6 to 7. And so the Apostle Paul, that former Saul of Tarsus, that Pharisee of the Pharisees, that one who kept the law blamelessly, Discovered one day on the road to Damascus, as he met the Savior face to face, that his own righteousness was as filthy rags. Paul understood experientially that the law could only condemn. The law was that measuring stick of God's holy standard, which no man could measure up to or keep. The law was manifested so that by the law could come the knowledge of sin. The law could save no one. No child understands the extent of his rebellion or the depth of his transgressions against his parent until he is confronted with his parent's law or standards of conduct. Disobedience is not clearly understood until it is measured against perfect obedience. And so the Apostle Paul, now a new man, now born again by the Spirit of God from above, is able to conclude in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. No human being can ever be justified in the sight of God based on personal merit or works because the sin nature and its enmity towards God is the problem. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1, 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There is but one hope for sinful men. There is but one Savior who can rescue fallen man from the condemnation of the law. And that man is Christ Jesus. And everyone who hears and believes in the gospel of Christ will be saved once and for all for it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation. It saves not only the least and the most helpless of men, such as a little child, but it saves even the greatest and the strongest of men, whether they be presidents, prime ministers, kings or queens. The gospel of Christ alone meets and satisfies God's holy standards of justice and righteousness, thereby allowing God's mercy, grace, and forgiveness of sins to flow freely to the repentant sinner. But the world has made it clear, and we include the United States and Canada as well, That they will not have that man, Christ Jesus, reign over them. They have chosen another man yet to come to reign over them, whether they realize it or not. And that man is the man of sin, the one who will profess to be the Messiah, the one who will allow his servants to revel in their sins and grovel in their fleshly desires. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. And oh, I trust that everyone who hears this message this morning is in Christ Jesus. The only one who went to the cross of Calvary and shed his own blood for our sins in order to redeem our souls. And if perchance there is but one here this morning that is not completely certain whether all their sins have been forgiven, then why not come to him this morning and ask his forgiveness and yield your life to him? He will not turn you away. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, Acts 16.31. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for thy holy word that thou hast inspired and divinely preserved it for us. And as we realize it and study it and read it carefully, we begin to tremble before a holy and a righteous God realizing we have offended thee in so many ways. Please forgive us and give us the power and the ability to repent from our sins and overcome these terrible things. But Lord, we also pray for our countries. We see that our leaderships have completely abandoned the things of God. There is no fear in them. And Lord, we pray for thy mercy, even at this late hour for our countries. For we trust thy word that teaches us that if my people who call themselves by my name shall humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land and forgive their sins. Father, may thy people have a burden. To pray for our nation even today and for our leaders that if possible, God may delay his judgment on these nations for we ask it in our Savior's name and for his glory always. Amen.